Thank you uh, so much, Rudy, for that great reminder. Um, I guess I'm going to look forward to the day when uh, I see the elders being able to carry me up so that I can speak, uh, you know, when I get older, of course. Um, and I'm so excited about next week, uh, getting back together finally. It's been a whole year. Our last meeting at the Eau Claire Children's Theater on, on a kind of a normal, our last normal time there was March 15th. Uh, of last year. I'm really grateful for Bridge Kids and the adjustments they're making to help us to have Bridge Kids for, from ages uh, six weeks through the third grade, and that's a big uh, step on their part. Um, and so, guys, hey, don't forget next week. It's 10 a.m., and it's daylight savings time. In 2018... Facebook rejected an ad posted by the University of Steubenville, a Franciscan university. The ad was an advertisement for an online theology course. The reason for the ad, the, the reason that Facebook rejected this ad was because it depicted the crucifixion of Jesus. It was rejected according to Facebook because it was shocking, sensational, and extremely violent. Now, if you've read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might agree with Facebook. It is indeed shocking. Uh, it is extremely violent. In his book entitled The Cross, Max Lucado describes the impact of the crucifixion on history. Here's what he says. Listen carefully. It rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized, despised, gold-plated, and burned it, worn it, and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber, divine, eternal, the death slayer? Never has timber been regarded as so sacred no wonder the Apostle Paul called the cross the core of the gospel. It is, a bottom, it is bottom line sobering. If the account is true, writes Lucado, it's history's hinge, period. If it is not, the cross is history's hoax. What do you think? Is the cross just, is it? history's hinge, or is it history's hoax? Today we come to the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark chapter 15. Jesus had been up all night, as you remember. A few hours ago, he had had his last supper with his disciples. Then the group went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there Jesus was betrayed by Judas. There he was arrested. During the night, uh, he was then marched to Annas' house. Then he was marched to Caiaphas' house. 
And there he met with the religious leaders. And as they begin to gather, the whole Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, and they convicted him of blasphemy. And so they sent him to Pilate. And um, after going before Pilate, Pilate sent him to Herod. And then Jesus had to walk back to Pilate. He was beaten, spit upon, slugged, and brutally scourged. Ultimately, he was sentenced to crucifixion, not because of any guilt of his own, but because to appease the people and the religious leaders. And so we come to uh, the first part of our passage in Mark chapter 15. I invite you to open your text and follow on, follow along in your scriptures. I want to read uh, beginning with Mark 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lot to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And so uh, this is the crucifixion of Jesus. And we begin with, in verse 21, the conscription a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and, and they forced him to carry the cross. Those who were on the execution squad were Roman soldiers. There were four of them. They had authority to enlist help um, to accomplish any task that they were about. Simon was just passing by. He was headed into the city of Jerusalem, and they were coming out of the city with Jesus on the way to crucify him. The soldiers forced Simon to carry the cross, the cross beam, actually, and the cross beam was a timber that weighed maybe 30 to 40 pounds. Mark doesn't say why Simon was needed to carry the crossbeam, but most likely it was because Jesus was unable. He was weak, he was dehydrated, and he had lost a lot of blood. Simon was from Cyrene. That's in North Africa, and today it's Libya. I think we, we have a map uh, with the... Uh, so this is North Africa down here, this is Egypt, and Cyrene is right here. Jerusalem is over here. That's like 780 miles by foot. 
And Simon has come to Jerusalem. Simon is a Jewish man. And in Cyrene, there's a very large number of Jewish people living in North Africa. And he has come to Jerusalem likely just to celebrate the Passover, a dream of Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. It also says here that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's just kind of an interesting little detail uh, as if it's really important. And we don't know who Alexander and Rufus were, but Mark does. And Mark sort of expects uh, his readers, the original readers, to know who he was talking about because they were likely well-known in the first century early church. It is quite possible that Simon became a Christ follower after these days, whether it was that day or in the near future, and that Simon raised his sons as Christ followers, and they later became leaders in the church. In verse 22, we have the location of the crucifixion. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The word Golgotha has also been translated from a Latin derivative as Calvary. That's what we see in America. Some churches are named after this as Calvary. It just means the place of the skull or also Golgotha. The, the location of the crucifixion was well known at that time. We're not sure why it was called the place of the skull. It may be because of the appearance of the location, maybe a rock formation. Let's, let's have a look at a possibility here. This is uh, actually just outside of Jerusalem. I've, I've been here and I've seen this location. And uh, this being the possible uh, picture of a skull. And was, was uh, on the top of that hill, was that the place? The traditional view of where Jesus was crucified is today at the scene of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you can't really make out anything of the, of, of the, of the scene because it's entired by this very large church, very ornate. And the location that they believe that Jesus was crucified is all now enshrined. And you can't see anything about what it actually would have looked like except it's just an ornate church building. In verse 23, there was an attempt at sedation. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This was like a mild narcotic. Some uh, Jewish women often tried to help people who were going to suffer at crucifixion to ease their pain. Jesus refused it, and he did not want to be sedated. In verses 24 and 25, the actual crucifixion. Mark is really simple in verse 24, and he says, and they, and they crucified him. Everyone knew what a Roman crucifixion was. Rome ruled the biblical world around the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew what Roman crucifixion was because that's how uh, capital punishment was carried out in the Roman Empire. The prisoner carried his cross, uh, cross beam through the streets, and it was to be a warning to all. Let everybody see. And this, of course, was very humiliating for the, for the prisoner. At the place of the crucifixion, he laid down on his back, and his hands were nailed to the cross beam. 
if you study a little bit of history and if you read a little bit about crucifixion, there were many different ways to that people were crucified. And uh, there were many different crosses. But this is the Roman crucifixion, and it was pretty consistent. Um, after he was nailed to the cross beam, he was hoisted up by ropes to the vertical beam already in the ground. That would have been a very painful movement. And then Mark writes, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. The soldiers of the execution squad got the honors of keeping the clothes of their victim. We may not think that's very important. It sounds kind of awful. But clothing was handmade and extremely valuable. It was just one of the perks that went with the execution squad. It included an outer garment, an undergarment, a belt, and uh, a head covering or a turban. In verse 25, Mark notes that it's nine in the morning when they crucified him. Um, nine a.m. on Good Friday. In Psalm 22, a thousand years before the birth of Christ, David recorded this psalm. It's, it's a messianic psalm, not because it's messy, it's because it has predictions about who about the Messiah. Uh, events that are described here that will be fulfilled in the life of the Messiah. And we look at Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. And um, it's quite likely that Jesus quoted this when he was nailed to the cross. We're actually going to look at Psalm 22 next week. And, and it reads, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is the crucifixion. They couldn't see it a thousand years before Christ. Jesus is living it. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Uh, the bones of a one, one being crucified um, are sort of bulging out now. They're very prominent with someone hanging on, a, on the cross for some time. Um, verse 18, and here's the fulfillment. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots of my garment. That's what the soldiers did. They divided up his clothes and they were casting lots right at the foot of the cross for the clothing that belonged to Jesus. In verse 26, we see the signage the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Mark, of course, gives very few details. John tells us the sign was written in three languages, Aramaic, uh, language of the, of the Jewish people in Israel, Latin, the language of the, uh, spoken by Romans and written by Romans, and Greek, which was the uh, New Testament uh, language of of commerce throughout the Roman Empire. The sign is ironic when you think about it. The Jewish leaders had charged Jesus with blasphemy, that he claimed to be God, and he was not. They, that Jesus claimed to be God's son, the Messiah. But to get the Romans to approve, uh, they decide to use the concept of treason, that Jesus proclaimed to be a king. Now, they really knew that Jesus wasn't a threat to Rome, but if they could just convince Pilate 
Pilate was not convinced that Jesus was a threat to Caesar. But that was the charge. It's ironic that Jesus was a king, but his kingdom was not of this world. Jesus was charged with blasphemy, but the ironic thing is, he was God. And he was dying for them. In verse 27, we see his company. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. The two rebels, the, the insurrectionists, were, were likely arrested at the same time as Barabbas. Now, Jesus was placed in the middle just like he's the leader. That's where Barabbas should have been. But Jesus had taken his place, and Jesus was dying for Barabbas. Luke records a conversation between Jesus and the criminals. And there was probably more than one exchange, and it happened over a period of time. And one of them eventually asked Jesus to, to welcome him into his kingdom. He recognized something unique about Jesus. And Jesus offers to welcome him in to the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 12, a passage that 800 years before the birth of Jesus spoke of the Messiah. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And notice this. And he was numbered with the transgressors, criminals. Jesus was nailed to the cross right in the middle of two rebels. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressions. Jesus prayed for his enemies. He prayed for those who were on the cross with him. The crucifixion take, uh, took place near uh, the side of the road. This was very common. Romans wanted everybody to see what happens to people uh, who violate Roman authority, and so they made it public. And so Jesus attracts a lot of attention, even in his crucifixion, crucifixion, even in his death. And the insults keep coming in verses 29 through 32. Those who passed by on the road hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. Some people are making fun of Jesus for what they think has happened. They misquote his words from earlier. Jesus had said, destroy this temple. And he was speaking of his very own body. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. He didn't say he was going to destroy anything. He was referring to someone else destroying his temple. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And so even the religious leaders standing there in the crowd, they mock Jesus while he suffers. He saved others. He, he raised other people from the dead. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Messiah would be a great deliverer. Messiah wouldn't die like this. Messiah would save himself. 
Verse 32, let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're making fun of Jesus. They, they call on Jesus to, to act on their terms. Uh, they're setting up a, a, a situation, a predicament that Jesus is in, and they want him to do them a favor and just show them. And if, if Jesus would just do that, they would, they would believe. You know, sometimes we too call on God to do things in, in our own terms. Yet, God has a different plan often, and God has his terms, and God has his will for accomplishing his purposes. And we don't get to manipulate God into answering what we want. Those who crucified were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Uh, you know, when you think about Jesus on the cross, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Could Jesus have come down? Did Jesus have the power or the ability or the authority to come down from the cross? And the answer is yes, absolutely. He could have done it, but he didn't. Why? He was constrained. He was restrained because he loved you and he loved me. It was his love that kept him, that held him to the cross, not the nails. In Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7, again, a thousand years before, um, the, the psalmist writes, but I am a worm and not a man. He's talking about how he feels. He feels like someone of no value, like a worm, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. This is a, this is a low point for Jesus. Emotionally, he feels worthless. He's ridiculed. He's made fun of by all. He is dejected and rejected. He has real human feelings. He understands what it means to be a human and, and to hurt and to be disappointed and to be discouraged and to feel like no one cares. The death of Jesus comes in verses 33 through 41. It begins with darkness in verse 33. At noon, the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At Friday noon, a supernatural darkness came over the land. Uh, maybe it was a supernatural darkness like came over the land of Egypt when Moses led God's people out. It was a God thing. It lasted for three hours. At 6 a.m., Jesus had appeared before Pilate for the very first time. At 9, he was crucified. And then the darkness came, and it lasted three hours. The darkness was foreboding. God was about to bring judgment on sin. You know, when you think about it, God was bringing judgment on your sin and my sin at that very moment. God's son would bear the brunt of this judgment. God's wrath would be 
poured out on Jesus in judgment of sin and God's wrath would be satisfied. Verse um, 34, we see Jesus forsaken. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemus sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has been on the cross for six hours now. He cries out with a loud voice. And again, he's quoting Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 is about him. Jesus was fully human and he was fully God. In his humanity, he experiences utter loneliness, pain, and separation from his father. He has never been separated from his father, never before. He feels utterly forsaken. So, what was happening? The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God was putting our sin and the sin of the entire world on Jesus and now Jesus has to identify with that sin. He is bearing our sin. Verses 35 and 36, Jesus is misunderstood. When Jesus spoke those words, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, his critics didn't hear Psalm 22, verse 1. They should have. I would imagine some people in the audience got it. They thought Jesus was calling for Elijah. Look at 35. Some of those standing there heard this. They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Now, if you know uh, the Old Testament, Elijah was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire. Uh, he didn't have to face death. Malachi 4, 5 predicted that Elijah would come back. And the audience wants to challenge Jesus and to dare him to have Elijah come and rescue him now. In verse 37, we have his death. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Mark is concise. He doesn't record everything Jesus said on the cross. This is very unique. When people die on the cross, they don't yell at the end. They're exhausted. They usually die of asphyxiation. They can't breathe. They can't get oxygen. And they just out of exhaustion, stop and die. But Jesus cried out in strength. It was his choice. It is finished for Jesus. He says those words. Luke records in Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Jesus gave his life back to God. It was his choice. It was his father's will. Jesus was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This was the cup that was not removed. This was the cup of God's wrath taken 
by Jesus. We come to verse uh, 38. Something happened the very moment that Jesus died. The, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was an unveiling. The access to God was unveiled. Of course, Mark is, gives simple detail. The first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus writes that the curtain in the Holy of Holies was 80 feet tall. Think of this. It was torn from the top down. God did it. Humanly, this was impossible. The curtain was very heavy and very strong. Now, to indicate this, later in 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, they tied horses to the veil in the temple. And the horses could not tear it apart. So what was the significance of God tearing the curtain in the temple from top to bottom? Well, God is removing something. He is removing a veil. God is making a new way. The old system has failed. Uh, the old covenant is done. It was fulfilled with Jesus' perfect life. Now there will be a new covenant between God and man, a new testament by the blood of Jesus. The access to God now will come only through Jesus. And now we understand John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he said those words, the disciples didn't understand yet. But they will. Jesus is the new way when that veil is, uh, when it is torn and when it comes down. God is done with, with the Old Testament system. In verse uh, 39, we have uh, the profession of, 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 of a very important man. And when the centurion stood there in front of Jesus, he saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. Uh, the centurion was in charge of the execution squad. He was, a, he was an experienced man. He had observed many executions. He likely was a grizzled veteran. But everything surrounding Jesus' death was different. Jesus was not angry or hateful. Jesus was not an ordinary man. Uh, Jesus didn't trash talk anyone. He didn't berate his critics or his executioners. Jesus was forgiving. And the three hours of darkness over the land was surreal. I don't know how much the centurion knew about Jesus, but he knew enough to know that Jesus was special, that Jesus was Righteous. He wasn't a vindictive man. Unlikely, he did not understand all of the ramifications of who Jesus was and even what it meant to be called the Son of God. But he saw God in Jesus. God was working in Jesus. Question for us is, is what do we think of Jesus? What, what do you think of Jesus? Um, because, you know, what you think and what you believe about Jesus is going to make all the difference. C.S. Lewis described what people often think. 
The way Lewis put it was, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he is Lord. If he's a liar, that means he's a deceiver and that he was dishonest and, and um, you can't count on him for what is true. If he's a lunatic, he's just a crazy guy and had delusions of grandeur. We can't follow him. But if he is Lord, he is indeed God's son. He is indeed the savior of the world. And so my question is, what do you think? In verses 40 and 41, we see some followers in the background. Very important. Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, of Joseph and Salome. And these were the women who served Jesus. There are several Marys in the Bible. Mary Magdalene, Magdalene was a convert of Jesus. She had been delivered of seven demons in Luke 8, 2. There was Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and he was one of the 12 disciples. And there was Salome, and, and she was the mother of James and John, and they too were disciples. Verse 41, our last verse, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. There were a lot of women there, and they don't get they don't get much print. They were faithful followers of Christ. Mostly they served behind the scenes. They were financial supporters. Um, Jesus included women in his ministry. This was, this was radical in the first century uh, for the Jewish culture to include women the way Jesus did. Jesus had a very high view of women. All of the disciples had abandoned Jesus, but not these women. They are the faithful ones. So as we conclude, I'd like to ask this question. What is the meaning and significance of the death of Jesus Christ? Jesus died for us because we are sinners. We're not perfect people. Um, we have failed God in our attitudes, in our actions, and our sin has separated us from God. We can't be close to God. We can't have a personal relationship with God because of sin. The Apostle Peter explains the significance of Jesus' death in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He just needed to do it once because it was totally complete and it was totally done and there was nothing to add to it ever. He suffered once. The righteous, Jesus is the righteous, for the unrighteous. And that's us. We're the unrighteous. And he suffered for all of the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. God wants to have a personal relationship with you and me. Jesus died to bring us into that relationship, to make it possible. He was put to death in the body, the crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit. And that's, that's the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection demonstrated his victory, his victory over sin, his victory over death and his victory over Satan. God has one requirement for us to have a relationship with God, to begin that relationship, to start that relationship. And I wonder, do you have that relationship? And 
It's to believe in Jesus. It's to trust him, to put our faith in him, recognizing that our sin has separated us from God, recognizing the purpose that Jesus' death was for us. It is personal. God is personal. God knows you and God loves you. And he wants you to acknowledge him personally. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. I used to think that referred to everybody on the planet. And it was like, that's not very personal to me. But God loves every person in the world. And, and he loves you and he loves me and he loves us the same. So that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the new way. This is uh, how the new covenant was launched. It was by the love of God sending his son for us to be a sacrifice. And it's all about us responding back to God in a personal way. Now, I know a lot of you, uh, most of you have, have made that decision at some time in your life. But there are still some, perhaps, who haven't made that decision yet. And I just, I want to invite you to consider this very carefully. And um, would you like to begin a relationship with God, a personal relationship with Christ? One of the ways that we can connect with God is to come to God uh, in prayer. And that's, that's one way to express faith. Um, it's, prayer is just talking to God. And we can talk to God out loud and we can talk to God silently. If you want to begin a personal relationship with God today, here's a, here's a prayer. It's just a way to express um, your faith in who Jesus is. And um, I'm just going to go through this prayer. And this is something you can do anytime. You can do it right now with me or you can do it um, later, whenever you want to. And it just needs to be in your words. It's not a formula about making sure you say everything exactly the way I do. But let's, let's pray. And if this prayer made sense to you, just go ahead and pray it back to God from your heart. Dear God, I know I've sinned and been disobedient to you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me. Right now, I want you to know that I trust Jesus, your son, as my savior. I know I don't deserve it. Deserve it. Thank you, God. Right now, I want Jesus to come into my life and I want him to lead me so that I can learn to follow him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The crucifixion is why we celebrate communion today. This is for all of us. If you just prayed that prayer with me, Communion is for you, but it's for all of us. Communion calls us to remember the crucifixion. When we do, it's an act of honor to God and to what Jesus has done for us. It's an act of worship. It helps us recalibrate our lives because we are reminded who we are. You know, we are sinners that are saved by grace. We are forgiven sinners. And it reminds me that uh, I, not, I, not, I ought not to take myself 
to be too important. I am not the center of the world and the most important person in the world, and I am not God. I am a sinner saved by grace. I am not God, but I am a child of God, and that's good news, and I'm forgiven, and I have eternal life. I have hope for the future, and I have the Holy Spirit living in me, and it just helps recalibrate my walk uh, with Christ. So today we're going we're gonna to take the bread and the cup because they remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And if you want to open your communion, this little wafer is, is a piece of bread. And uh, when we take communion, it reminds us of the body of Jesus. It is not the body of Jesus. It's a reminder. It's a symbol. It's a metaphor. And it causes us to think about Jesus' sacrifice for us. And uh, so I want to I pray for us and give thanks for the bread and for the cup. And so uh, let's just pause and do that right now. Father, I just, uh, I come before you. I thank you for the bread and the cup that remind us of the crucifixion, that remind us of Jesus' death on our behalf. Thank you for the bread that represents the body of Jesus. And thank you for the cup that represents the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So let's take the bread. This is a symbol of the body of Christ. And now let's remember Jesus together. The Bible says that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup and then he gave it to his disciples. And he and he invited them to take and drink this and to uh, remember his death. And this represents the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's remember him together. Father, I'm so grateful to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life because of what Jesus did for me and for what he did for all people. May we respond back to you with our love and dedication. May our lives show it by our obedience. May we not only profess to be followers, but may we be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Thank you um, for all the New Testament teaches us about Jesus, even the long focus about his death. And may we just continue to grow in our appreciation of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.